This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Gabriel Hamer, an Associate Professor of Entomology at Texas A&M University. We'll be discussing domestic dogs as sentinels for West Nile virus in Mexico. And Dr. Hamer is calling from Guatemala today. Welcome, Dr. Hamer. Thank you. Nice to be here. You tested domestic pet dogs in Mexico for neutralizing antibodies for mosquito-borne flaviviruses, specifically West Nile virus, Zika, and Dengue. Tell us about the different mosquitoes involved in these infections. Sure. So West Nile virus is a very common virus throughout uh, the United States. It's transmitted by Chulix mosquitoes that feed on birds. Um, and in the southern United States and in Mexico, it's mainly Culex quinquefasciatus, or the southern house mosquito. Uh, Zika and dengue and some other viruses are referred to as Aedes-born viruses, and so they're transmitted mainly by Aedes aegypti, which is common throughout many tropical and subtropical regions of the world. And why dogs and not cats? Well, some of our studies looking at mosquito feeding patterns were showing that these mosquitoes were feeding more on dogs than on cats. So that was one motivational factor. Another was that uh, dogs tend to be a little bit more common in these household settings throughout uh, Mexico. And then also dogs are a little easier to sample than, than cats as well. Do these infections affect dogs the same way as they affect people? Fortunately for at least the, these mosquito-borne viruses that we were studying, um, there's certainly a lot of evidence that dogs can get exposed and they develop antibodies and seroconvert, um, but there's not a lot of um, cases where uh, dogs are showing um, clinical signs of illness. Um, so fortunately, uh, evidence of disease is less uh, common in dogs uh, compared to humans. Well, let's just talk about people for a second then. Are there treatments for these three viruses? So for people, there, there are you know, options, um, you know, for example, antiviral medications that can be taken. But unfortunately, one of the reasons why there's such a problem throughout the world is um, there's not a lot of um, uh, vaccines or uh, therapeutics that can be taken to help um, protect or, or remove infections. Um, and that's also true for pets. Um, there's not a lot of options for supportive, uh, you know, beyond supportive care for, for, pet, for dogs. Um, fortunately for horses, there are some vaccines that are effective for not just West Nile virus, but some other similar encephalitis viruses. I know we've done a couple of podcasts recently on Hendra virus, and um, there's a vaccine for that. So that's some good news out there. You previously looked at 80s and Kulux mosquitoes feeding patterns. How did your findings from that research influence this study? Us seeing these results of, you know, mosquitoes feeding on dogs in South Texas and Northern Mexico. That's where we wanted to look elsewhere to see how often this is happening and not just dog exposure to mosquitoes, but also the associated viruses. Why did you choose Mexico to conduct this study? You know, in the United States, we have very little 80s-born virus transmission. So Florida and Texas are the only states with occasional local transmission of, say, dengue or Zika, um, but not really enough to conduct this kind of study. We needed to go to an area that's more considered endemic for dengue and these other viruses. 
And so that's why we um, developed collaborations with partners in Mexico. I'm sure most people are familiar by now with the term antibody, but what exactly are neutralizing antibodies? You know, we didn't have any commercially available serology kit, for example, with with these dog samples. Um, So we really had to do more of a traditional or gold standard serological assay. And how that works is you basically in the lab combine the dog's blood with live virus and cell culture. And if that dog had been previously exposed to these viruses and developed antibodies, those, the presence of those antibodies are going to prevent the viral growth or prevent the formation of viral plaques. And that's why the antibodies are neutralizing the, the growth of the virus. Do these neutralizing antibodies protect against future cases? So usually if a person or an animal has a high neutralizing antibody titer for a given virus, that usually means they also then are going to be protected from future exposures. Were there specific dog breeds that you sampled for your study? We generally went went to communities and... We were interested in really bleeding and obtaining samples from all the dogs present. Um, but in these communities in Mexico, that tended to be mixed breed or chihuahuas or pit bulls. Theoretically, could different dog breeds be more or less susceptible to mosquito-borne viruses uh, due to different genetic traits? So for a lot of these viruses in particular, and even a number of other infectious agents, there's often not a lot of um, associations with particular breeds. A lot of them are similarly um, susceptible. Um, And so in our case, you know, in this study, we did not see any differences in the piece of antibodies broken down by different breeds. These were just blood tests, right? No animal cruelty was involved. So we usually go house to house in these communities and ask permission from the homeowners um, if we can obtain these samples and explain the project. Um, and then we, can, we get consent from those pet owners. And usually the owners are you know, right there present while we're working with the animals. And then, of course, we let them go when we're done. Your study is particularly about dogs being sentinels for West Nile virus. Explain what a sentinel would be in this context. So sentinels, in this case, would be a scenario where an animal could be a signal or a proxy for human exposure to an infectious agent. Um, And the beauty about using a sentinel or these signals is sometimes you can see evidence of, say, circulation of a virus before humans get exposed. So that could allow you you time to, to take action. And then also sometimes these sentinels are just easier to sample. Maybe sampling pets is a little bit easier than than people. Tell us a little bit more about your study and how you went about it. We developed collaborations with universities in Mexico. So this is principally Hector Ochoa in Ecosur and Mario Rodriguez and Jose Estrada Franco. They are at Institut Polytech Nacional, and that is in Tamaulipas, Mexico. And so through those partnerships, we had obtained all the permits to, uh, for their teams to sample dogs. They ended up with close to 300 dog blood samples. We obtained those dog blood samples and then did the assay in our lab at Texas A&M. And again, that's called the plaque reduction neutralization test. 
um, to look for the presence of antibodies. What did you find? Given those observations of um, mosquitoes feeding on dogs, uh, we were expecting that these 80s Egypti-borne viruses, such as dengue and Zika, we were expecting to find neutralizing antibodies for those viruses. Instead, we did not. We did find small number of dogs that showed evidence of exposure to dengue and then maybe also Zika. Uh, but overall, most of them did not have those antibodies. But we did, uh, while testing for West Nile virus, we were a little bit surprised to find a very high uh, prevalence or seroprevalence of antibodies in these dogs in northern Mexico, but not southern Mexico. Why might dogs be more likely to be sentinels for West Nile virus, but not Zika or dengue? I think, you know, the potential for dogs or even any kind of other animal to play the role of sentinels is probably very context dependent. Um, first, there needs to be a lot of, you know, the presence of the infectious agent, you know, being transmitted by mosquitoes locally. Um, and then those mosquitoes that are infected need to feed on these animals. Um, so for Western virus, it does appear like in northern Mexico, in Reynosa, we had scenarios where we had a lot of virus transmission and those mosquitoes were feeding on dogs. But that did not appear to be the case for Aedes aegypti and associated viruses. But we don't know why th those mosquitoes weren't feeding on dogs. There's no part of your study that tells us that, right? Right. So in... In Southern, we weren't doing the blood meal analysis associated with this dog study. Um, and so we're not, that could have been one explanation. Just, you know, the, the virus could have been present. There could have been virus positive mosquitoes, but they weren't being fed on by local, you know, by the Aedes aegypti. Although West Nile virus neutralizing antibodies were found in a high number of pet dogs, the number of reported cases and people remained low. What do you think this is? Probably one of the main issues um, could simply be uh, what is referred to as reporting bias or, you know, misdiagnosis. There's a lot of febrile illnesses that could result in symptoms that are similar to West Nile um, fever. Um, and th these could be mistaken for another, you know, illness, um, and then either just not get tested or go unreported. One other dimension that could be happening is in Mexico, a lot of people living there are commonly exposed to many different flaviviruses. So that's the family that all these viruses occur in, and, and that, that includes dengue and Zika and West Nile virus. And once they get exposed to one, again, that might actually help protect them against exposure to other flaviviruses, in which case they would not have as much um, disease. It was my understanding that you could get West Nile virus repeatedly. Is that wrong? With dengue, for sure, uh, because there's multiple serotypes of dengue. So that people can repeatedly get sick with dengue. For West Nile virus, um, you know, for the most part, uh, people, once they're exposed, they do produce antibodies um, and are likely less susceptible for at least a while we may not know how long that protection would last. What are the public health implications of your findings? We know, you know, Texas has a lot of West Nile virus. There's a lot of human cases occurring in, in larger cities like Houston or, or Dallas. But as you go south into Mexico, either there's less virus transmission 
or there continues to be virus transmission and we just notice less human disease. So the study in northern Mexico where we're looking at dog exposure to West Nile virus, that's showing evidence that there's a lot of circulating West Nile virus in that area. And then that leads the question as to why there's not the associated human disease, which we just, just discussed. So either cases are going unreported or, you know, humans in those communities had already been exposed to dengue or Zika and then just are less susceptible to West Nile virus. I think you mentioned one. So what were the surprises? I guess we had a couple. One, we were kind of expecting to see more evidence of dog exposure to the 80s-born viruses, given that, you know, at least in some cases, 80s aegypti are feeding heavily on dogs. We did not see that, so that's surprising. But then we were also surprised by nearly 50% of the diagnosis had been exposed to West Nile virus. You don't hear a lot of West Nile virus. There's actually very few reported cases in, in people in Mexico in general, including northern Mexico. So I think that is a surprise, and it certainly um, suggests that the virus is present and circulating. There must have been many challenges in doing this study. What were they? So one challenge would just be simply um, kind of logistics. We have a large, you know, Africa team. It's international, and we needed to ship these samples from Mexico to the United States. So just having all the export and import permits took quite a while. So that's certainly a challenge. Mosquito repellent is a staple during the warmer months. Is there a mosquito repellent that's safe for using on dogs? So repellents that may only last a few hours are often not used. Um, instead, you know, we focus on what are going to be the, the pathogens that these, you know, mosquitoes and ticks and fleas could transmit um, that could hurt dogs. And they, they certainly do exist. Dog heartworm, for example, is one very important one. So there's uh, very commonly dogs, you know, any kind of dog receiving veterinary care would be on a dog, a preventative for dog heartworm in the United States. So that's one example of protection. There's also a lot of other uh, flea and tick um, preventatives as well that are often, you know, systemic insecticides where the dog obtains uh, that medicine and then that helps essentially kill the ticks or fleas that are feeding on the dogs. You mentioned that dogs seem to be pretty much asymptomatic for West Nile virus. So either way, in symptomatic or asymptomatic, can an infected pet dog transmit this infection to owners? For these viruses, uh, there's not really evidence that a dog is going to produce a, a high titer or a high amount of the virus in the blood. Um, and so because of that, I mean, that's good in the sense that that's going to reduce the risk of those dogs reinfecting mosquitoes or, you know, resulting in some kind of dog to human uh, transmission event. So basically for these viruses, that's not even possible. Generally speaking, then, what are the best ways that people can protect themselves from getting mosquito bites and their dogs, even without the pills or with them? For people avoiding high risk scenarios, like avoiding going outdoors or, you know, in locations where mosquitoes are feeding, or if they are going in that scenario, wearing long pants or long clothes or wearing repellent, that's certainly something humans can do. Adding screens, you know, to windows, that's important as well for households. For pets, it would be, you know, a similar set of recommendations. Uh, certainly, 
those products that control against ticks and fleas might also help protect against these other uh, mosquito-associated So you're in the field right now. What kind of clothing do you have on? How are you protecting yourself? We're in rural communities in Guatemala, and um, there have seen a lot of Tulips mosquitoes and Aedes aegypti inside of homes. Um, a lot of them are filled up with blood. We're collecting those blood and mosquitoes for the research we're doing. Um, so we have long clothing on, long pants, long shirts. Shirts. I've even treated our clothing with permethrin, so an insecticide or a repellent that will help protect us. I heard at the beginning of the pandemic that CDC was working with partners to develop a grapefruit-based um, repellent has, that was supposed to be coming out this year. Have you heard anything about that? I haven't heard anything more. Definitely a lot of research groups are continuing to advance the mosquito repellent you know, research arena that ultimately, in many cases, are, the goal is to lead to commercial products. Um, certainly for a long time, that's been one of the, you know, very effective repellent that's been used for many years. Um, but, you know, there's always the goal of developing alternative repellents or ones that may be um, slightly safer. And so, um, like you said, grapefruit, tomatoes, even have an extract that has repellent properties. Um, and several of those though, do make it to the market. There's a lot of different oils as well that are, are used. In fact, here in Guatemala, um, I wasn't finding any DEET-related products. I was seeing various essential oils on the shelf. Well, speaking of your field work, tell us about your job and, and your field work and what you're doing out there. So as an associate professor at Tix A&M, um, I do a variety of uh, you know, field or lab-based projects studying ecology and control of multiple vector-borne diseases. And so not just mosquito-borne viruses like West Nile virus and dengue, but also other systems, one in particular here in Guatemala and in Texas that we study would be the uh, trypanosoma cruzi. It's the protozoan parasite that, that causes Tagus disease in both humans and animals, and it's transmitted by uh, kissing bugs um, that are actually very large compared to mosquitoes. They're about an inch long. So we're here also in Guatemala collecting uh, these kissing bugs and looking at um, dog exposure to uh, trypanosoma cruzi, the agent of Chagas disease. So Chagas, actually, I think I'm doing a podcast in the next few weeks about Chagas, but that's from the kissing. Does that bug bite you or does it, how does that transmit? Tritamines, it's a subfamily of, of true bugs. They are obligate feeders, so they all through their nymphal instars and as adults, they need to feed on blood, and that's either going to be humans or animals or, you know, dogs, etc. Um, and then occasionally while they're feeding, they acquire the pathogen um, from an infected animal, and then they, they maintain it, and these kissing bugs remain infected. Um, and then that's when, as they're feeding on a human or another animal, um, the parasite is actually, the infectious stage of the parasite is passed through the So it's actually eco-contamination, and that's one of the routes of human or animal exposure. I don't know what I would do if an inch-long bug got on me and bit me. Um, it's a very upsetting concept. 
Well, now that summer's here, when you're not out in the field, what are your favorite ways to relax? Well, we're here in Guatemala with the family this summer, and we are going to lots of ecological parks. There's great places to tour and sites to see in Guatemala. We still have to go to a volcano, for example. Um, But yeah, our family usually enjoys the outdoors in a variety of ways. Well, nice. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me out of your field work and your family time, Dr. Hamer. No problem. Yep. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the May 2022 article, Domestic Dogs as Sentinels for West Nile Virus, Mexico online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.